I have come into um, Christmas this year uh, kind of with mixed emotions. Maybe that's where you are trying to figure this out, trying to been through Christmas so many times, you know, uh, as a kid and then as a preacher that after a while it seems like it's a pretty well-worn rut. I came across this passage in Colossians chapter 2 and there's a phrase in here that intrigues me. It says, my purpose is that you might be encouraged in heart and united in love so that you might have the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God. Namely, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. My prayer is that you would know the mystery of God, in whom lies hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is a season uh, like no other season in the year, if you think about it. And I want you to think about it. We have more fairy tales at Christmas time than any other time in the year. Have you noticed that? Now, we have them. We have them at Easter. We have an Easter bunny, if you will. We have uh, at Valentine's Day uh, uh, pudgy little um, angel shooting arrows at young lovers. But that's it. That's all we have. But at Christmas, we have a litany of characters that come out of the blue. We have reindeer that fly, elves that make toys. We have a fat man in a red suit, flies around, visits every house, not in the world, goes down chimneys even when the house doesn't have a chimney. We have a snowman that sings to children, talks, moves, sings, saying, catch me if you can. Think about it for a moment. What is, as a child, your favorite character of Christmas. Don't say Jesus right now. That, I mean, we'll get to that, okay? But don't say, oh, Jesus, I don't care about anything else. Really care about something else for a moment. It's okay. This is church, I know, but try it, really. Think about your favorite character. Tell the person next to you, my favorite character. Go for it. You have 10 seconds. <laughs> don't you have it? Some of you are just looking at each other. Yeah, okay, third grade, I learned Sandy Slayfoot. He was born four feet tall. His feet were three feet three. He tried to help make Santa's toys, but with his feet so long, he'd trip and fall and break them all. Just everything went wrong. And then one day, the reindeer stable burned, and he skied downhill by remembering what he learned, and he saved the reindeer. Third grade, I was thinking about Sandy Slayfoot, and I thought, yeah, he's pretty much a stud. So that was my all-time favorite, and you just had yours that you shared with each other. Well, my question is, why do you do this? Why do you do that? And then, on top of that, when you turn about 12 or 13 years old, you start disbelieving in everything that you just mentioned. So if you believed in Santa, you don't at 12. If you believed in, in Sandy Slayfoot, you don't at 12. Well, maybe six. You don't. But here's the odd thing. When you have children of your own, you turn right around and you perpetuate the story. Are there children in the room? You perpetuate the... <laughs> Getting them to believe in things that you yourself believed in and don't any longer 
Why do you do that? That's what's bugging me. Why are there so many stories at this time of year? And why are we so insistent that we pass them down to our children, this magic and surprise of Christmas? And I wonder if you've really done your children a favor when you straighten them out. <laughs> My theory is that at Christmas time, we invent impossible things to satisfy our instinct for impossible things. My theory is that at Christmas we like astonishing tales because, as Chesterton said, it touches the raw nerve of the ancient instinct for astonishment. Something is happening at Christmas that is ridiculous, it's absurd, it's outrageous, it's unreasonable, it makes no sense at all. And so the ground is fertile for these kinds of impossible things. And in that fertile ground, the mind just goes sideways and invents even more. Let me put it like this. We come into Christmas every year in at least two levels. One level, if you're not in church, Two levels if you are in church, and since you're in church, I'll tell you both of them. And I'm going to propose in a minute that we take on a third level. The first level, i got to come down to do it because it is the lowest, the most primal. It's the mood of Christmas. you got to be in the mood, baby. Now, in order to get in the mood, you got to have time. You got to have space because if you don't have time and space, I mean, if you're working all the time, like if you're a parent, how do you do this? Work, 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 work. Oh, it's December 24. Everybody quick, celebrate Christmas. Silent night. Oh, and you're in the mood just like that. One song, boom. But that mood is short. So if you need, if you want to get into the mood, that's the sentiment, the feeling, the state of mind. It's the pause, the margin, the ah, it's that time of year. You need margin in your life and you need a signal. You need some sign that when you do it every year, it says to everyone in the family, it is Christmas time. So in our house, whenever we put up the tree, decorate it and order a pizza, it's on. <laughs> when the kids watch Elf, hate that movie, <laughs> it's on. When dad digs out the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, yeah, baby, <laughs> it's on. Now think about it. There's something in your family that when you do it every year, you think, <laughs> it's time for Christmas. What is it? Think about it. What is it? Turn person next to you. You got five seconds. Tell them real quick. All right. You're done. No, really, you're done. Whenever you see this in society, on the streets, the decorations go up, you drive down through 
the bypass, you see the trees up in Hobby Lobby or in Lowe's, you go, oh, it's beautiful, I forgot it's Christmas. It's that signature moment that says it's time for the mood. Some of you drive through the park and see the lights, the 150,000 lights or something through Matter Park, and that becomes the signature moment. Everybody celebrates that. But there is an elevated form of this, which I'm calling not the mood of Christmas, I'm calling the meaning of Christmas. You see, and this is where the church comes in, with their cheesy signs. Jesus is the reason for the season. (laughs) Keep Christ in Christmas. Sounds like Joel Osteen, doesn't it? This is where pastors all over pull out texts from the New Testament and they tell stories of characters in the Bible and they associate them to our lives today and they say, see, you too can be like the wise men, fall down and worship. You can be like Mary, humble and letting the Lord do whatever he wants in you. We associate our lives with a character in the New Testament story, and we say, no, no, it's not all about the mood, people. It's not all about feelings of happy and joy and cheerfulness and generosity and those kinds of things. It's about the meaning. It's the stories that is behind it all. And so maybe your family, just like our family, has a signature moment whereupon when you do that thing, it's your family's way of breathing the meaning back into the mood. It's your way of kind of collecting the family together and say, well, I hope you're all having a good time, but this is really about the birth of Jesus, and I want you to see this. In our family, we read the text before we open gifts every year, and it's never me. It's always my dad because he's still alive. So this 86-year-old guy opens the text, and even though we know everything he's going to read, you know, and there were in that same country, shepherds abiding, keeping watch over their flocks by night. I remember as a kid, he got partway through it, and I interrupted him. I said, and lo, an angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were so afraid. <laughs> he looks at my mother and says, honey, put the gifts away. I said, read, baby, read. (laughs) You see what he's doing? He's saying, this is all and all about your gifts, not all about the mood. This is about the meaning. We're going to have meaning in the mood or there will be no Christmas. So the way that you apprehend the mood of Christmas is through some kind of tradition that opens the door. The way that you apprehend the meaning of Christmas is by reading a story and retelling it. It's by using the powers of reason, stating propositions that are logical, and coherent so that when you hear them, you say, yeah, that's exactly what Christmas means. So a couple months ago, I was out of town and I was going to buy some books. I thought, nah, it's cheaper just to go to Barnes and Nobles and read them. So that's what I did. I've been about a half a day sitting in Barnes and Nobles and I read a bunch of Christmas books. I was too cheap to buy. And here's a few snippets that come from Typical books written by religious leaders on Christmas. One of them says, all this must happen if God and humanity were to ever be reconciled. So the Lord of the universe invaded the earth. He entered our world through a door called Bethlehem, and the world was changed 
forever. Across the aisle was another one that said, it is the most expensive gift you'll ever receive. It's priceless because Jesus paid for it with his life. It's the only gift you'll receive that will last forever. It's extremely practical and you'll use it for the rest of your life. A third one said, this one just released this year, Christmas means that salvation is by grace. This is the one truth that we have found hidden in every Christmas passage. In every other religion, the founder points to eternal life. But because Jesus is God come in the flesh, he is eternal life. To unite with him by faith, to know him in love, is to have eternal life. Period. Full stop. There is nothing else for you to achieve or to attain. On my way out the door, I saw these free devotionals. I thought to myself, if it's free, it is me. And so I opened it, and on December 25th, it says the purpose of Jesus' coming was to restore lowly people like us to relationship with God. We desperately need God. But no matter how hard we try, we cannot get to God on our own merit. The good news of Christmas is that God has come to us. Now, listen to me one more time. The way that we get into the meaning of Christmas is through the powers of reason. The power of all four of these statements is that they make sense. They're logical. You can follow them. No one's getting lost. No one is saying anything outrageous. If you doubt this, say any one of these things around your friends this December and nobody will roll their eyes. So I'm calling for yet another level that I'm calling the mystery of Christmas. I've said the way into the mood is through some kind of tradition that signals it's on. The way into the meaning is through a series of statements that make perfect, coherent sense. The powers of reason. The way into the mystery is through the imagination. Now, in America, we think of mystery or imagination as drumming up things that aren't real, but that isn't what the term means. To imagine something is only to image it in your mind when it is not directly in front of you. To imagine something, listen for it, is to step into it before you fully know what it is. What makes a mystery a mystery is that you can't get your mind around it. Tom Torrance says it's the difference between gripping a baseball and gripping a football. You can comprehend something with your mind in the line of reason, and it's like getting your whole hand around a baseball. But a football is too big for your hand. You can grip it so that you don't drop it, but it's too big for your hands and you can't get your hands completely around it. He said there is a difference between comprehending something with our minds and apprehending something with our imaginations. When we apprehend something, we only come up close to it, but we have to go into it in order to discover it. 
This is a huge difference because in this really highly cognitive environment like college church, we have a really hyper sense of reason and intellect. But sometimes while we were busy developing our intellect, our imaginations atrophied. So we keep waiting to get our minds completely around something before we give ourselves to it. But you understand, if you ever get your mind completely around a mystery, then you don't have the whole thing. You've shrunk it. You've shrunk it so you can reason with it. So you have to be comfortable believing in things that you don't completely understand. I liken it to um, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia when Lucy and Edmund and Peter go into the professor's cabinet, you know, and there's no back to the cabinet. Through the fur coats and the mothballs on the ground, It leads to a world with far-out figures and things you couldn't possibly dream up. You can stand outside the cabinet if you want and try to figure everything else out, or you can open the door and you can go into it and figure it out as you go. I'm calling us to a mystery. So in Luke chapter 1, what was just read to you is mystery, not meaning. The meaning is that Jesus was born. The mystery is the incarnation. If I read this right, by the time Mary was chosen, the Holy Spirit was ready to act. We're never told why she was chosen. Read that into the story if you want, but it isn't there. And after she is chosen, the Holy Spirit conceives the child inside of her. So at one time, we have a fetus that is conceived by God and yet carried by the mother. Let me say it differently. The child was initiated by the Holy Spirit, but nurtured by a human. So Athanasius says, he was begotten from the Father before the worlds began, and yet he was begotten in the mother, born in this world, perfect God and perfect man. Let me say it a little bit differently. We have a woman who was created by her own child. So how do we know that that story's true? And flying reindeer are false. 
That's the question, isn't it? Shall I straighten my kids out about Santa and yet convince them of something even more preposterous? This. Chesterton has a beautiful line in orthodoxy. He says, you know it is the right key when it unlocks the lock. Let me translate that. You believe in the incarnation not because you can prove it, but because by it you can prove everything else. When you look at the incarnation, you suddenly start to make sense of all of these religious inklings that you've had your entire life. Now you know why you love mystery and magic. You know why you are drawn naturally into community. Now you know why you have longed since a child to be innocent, pure, unblemished. It's the incarnation. What do we mean by that? Let me frame it in. I'm going to give you four little statements that you can write down or just text in your phone or something. And I'd love for you to take these with you this week, and I'd love for you to meditate on them as I have started to do, because when I did, oh, man, the mystery of Christmas becomes even brighter and fuller. And in a moment, I want us to stand, not now, but in a moment, I want us to stand in some form of praise and adoration. Can I say one more time before I say these things? In this intellectual community, you can only understand part of this. But someone said, you cannot improve the beauty of a flower by dissecting it. You cannot use your sharp mind and cut the truth a thousand ways and think it, you'll kill it. There comes a time to just put the mind down and smell the flower and fall down and worship God. That's what the incarnation is. Here are some of the thoughts I'm using. One, in the incarnation, God became like us. You knew that. So that we could become like him. That's the other half. When God became a man, he revealed to us, listen closely, not only the nature of God, but the true nature of humanity. Let me tell you why that's important. Because every time we sin, every time we err, we chalk it up to humanity. We say to err is human. As if the more you erred, the more human you would be. But in fact, the opposite is the truth, isn't it? The more you err, the less human you become. Not the more. So in Jesus Christ, we have a picture of what God is truly like. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. But we also have a picture of what humanity is truly like. 
Colossians chapter 2 says, For in him the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. The fullness, that means all that is of God is poured into him. The fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. That's chapter 2, verse 9. Keep reading verse 10. And you also are given fullness. There's that word again, in Christ. Just as God has poured himself into an individual named Christ, who is specifically an individual and yet for the world, Christ has poured himself into you so that you have the fullness of God. When Jesus came and walked amongst us, he showed us God and he showed us us. And as I've contemplated on that this year, I thought to myself, I was wrong about both of them. I was wrong about both of them. I had God too far off and I had myself too far down. Second statement, God dwelled among us. In the incarnation, God dwelled among us. Yes, but in the incarnation, God dwells inside of us. This is the beauty of the Holy Spirit. The child that is conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit has placed the child inside of you. Now, listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. For we do not have a spirit from this world. No, no. We have a spirit from God who shows us what God has given us. Romans chapter 8. If someone does not have the spirit of God, he is none of Christ's. But if we belong to Christ, we have that same Spirit. Do you understand that the same Holy Spirit who plants the child or conceives of the child inside of Mary is the same Spirit who gives you eternal life today. So your eternal life is not just something that you enjoy after you die. Your eternal life is the very life of God himself, that same Holy Spirit who is alive in you, even though you live in a world that is dying. The Holy Spirit is the link between his incarnation and ours, which is the third point. God came to earth. We knew this. But he's still here. See, we all thought he left. But if the same Holy Spirit who conceives of that child is inside of you, possessing you, then what is the body of Christ? Do you think that is just a colloquialism? 
that we use for a church? Or is the body of Christ, the united church, possessed by the same Holy Spirit, not another one, living inside of flesh today? It's what the body of Christ is. It's not just church. It is something mysterious, something unreasonable, the flesh of Christ in this world. Last statement. So then through Christ, God reconciled the world to himself. That part you know. But if we are the ones that the Spirit possesses today, if the incarnation is still happening, then God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. It's what we do. We stand between God and his world, and we bring them together. Now, here's what you might do with this. One of them is to turn on your right brain. Because in this highly analytical, intellectual society, there are only a few artists, maybe a few poets, and most of us think, no, I wasn't gifted that way, I don't work that way. But I, I've started to wonder what might happen if a bunch of us would just say, even though I'm not an artist, I should try to draw this, I should try to paint it. So I would meditate on it, I would think about it, I would pray through these four statements, and then I might say, what does this look like if I, if I were to write about this? Some of you might write a poem. Some of you would just paint a picture. Some of you would draw something. If you want, bring it. We'll put it on the wall. You don't have to put your name on it unless you want to. Can't sell it, but you can bring it. So try to activate a part of your brain that you haven't maybe activated before. You say, no, no, I'm not really into that stuff. Okay, it's only 30 days. Be into it. I mean, you can try it for 30 days. Don't show anybody, but just do it and say, if I were to imagine what it was like to live inside of this mystery, what would I paint or draw or write? The second thing you might do is to pick up the Bible in, in the mornings when you have that margin that we've talked about. You would read the chapters in the New Testament that talk about the incarnation. So that's Matthew chapter 1 and 2 or Luke chapter 1 and 2 or John chapter 1. Or if you're really smart in the Bible and you know all these New Testament passages, you may go there in Corinthians or Colossians or Romans and as you meditate on those things, imagine yourself inside of that story and ask yourself, what does this mean for me? What does this call out of me? What hope does it give me for something new? 